chapter seven of anglo-american memories by george washburn smalley this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seven emerson in england english traits emerson and matthew arnold emerson's last visit to england was made in eighteen seventy three after his health had failed he had been in egypt and on the continent hoping to recover the freshness of his mental powers but that was not to be in london he and his daughter ellen who gave to her father a loving devotion without limits lived in apartments in down street piccadilly it was only too evident that even after ten months of rest and travel he was an invalid in mind he could not recollect names a failing common in advanced age of course but emerson was only in his seventieth year and was to live ten years more he resorted to all kinds of paraphrases and circumlocutions one of the men who seemed to me the most sincere and clear-minded i have met was oh uh, you, you know who i mean i, I met him at your house the, the, the biologist the champion of uh, darwin with that lucid energy he talked to us when i mentioned huxley's name emerson said oh yes how could i forget him but presently the name had to be given to him again the power of association between people or things and the names of them had been lost he was always said the critics a little déconseur sentences they insisted succeeded each other without much obvious connection or without the copula which would have brought them into their true relation the truth is he gave his reader credit for a little imaginative power he took him into partnership he was mindful of voltaire's pungent epigram l'art d'être ennuyeux c'est l'art de tout dire he had his own theory of style and of diction his temperament left him no choice if his quickness of transition from one subject to another or from one thought to another left some of his readers toiling after him in vain they were not the readers for whom he wrote why should they read him if he wrote a language to them unknown the interview between huxley and himself to which emerson referred was at breakfast for breakfasts were then given almost as often as luncheons are now there were a dozen or so people to meet him men and women i introduced each of them as they arrived in each case they have been asked to make emerson's acquaintance but to some of them emerson was an unknown name or if not wholly unknown called up in their minds no clear image of the man or knowledge of his life's work tell me who he is uh, tell me what he's done is he english or american but i suppose there never has been a time when a knowledge of literature or of great spiritual influences has been an indispensable passport to social position nor was it because emerson was an american that he was unfamiliar to these delightful and in many ways accomplished women years afterward in eighteen eighty eight i was engaged to lunch on the day when news of matthew arnold's death had come arnold had been so good a friend to me that i did not like going on this first moment to such an entertainment but i thought the talk would turn on arnold and i went my hostess was a woman renowned in the world or in her world for great qualities known to everybody and i should have thought knowing everybody who had as arnold had a place both in letters and in society 
i referred to his sudden death ah yes she answered an american was he not that may be set off against the unacquaintance of these other ladies with emerson what emerson cared for was to meet the men and women who stood in some spiritual or intellectual relation to him or who were his disciples mr alexander ireland in his biographical sketch of emerson quotes an illustrative story it was in edinburgh this same year and dr william smith president of the edinburgh philosophical association was driving him about that wonderful city dr smith had told him of a worthy tradesman in nicholas street who is his enthusiastic admirer when emerson heard of it he proposed to call on him they stopped at the worthy tradesman's and dr smith went into the shop and said uh, mr blank uh, mr emerson is at the door and will be glad to see you for a few minutes the five minutes were well spent adds dr smith and the disciple was happy for the rest of his life it was characteristic of emerson and of emerson as an american very likely he did not quite understand how immense is the gulf which in this country separates the man who stands behind a counter from the man who stands in front of the counter if he had understood he would not have cared what he cared for was the point of contact and of discipleship it was the master who sought his pupil because he was his pupil during emerson's too brief stay in london i called often in down street miss ellen was anxious to protect her father against the pressure from any quarters for public addresses and to decline as many private invitations as possible at oxford it was the same but neither in oxford nor in london did emerson lecture except briefly at mr thomas hughes working men's college between him and tom hughes he was never called anything else there was not very much in common except sterling qualities of character hughes was a good and amiable philistine english to the tips of his fingers who wrote one book tom brown's school days which is immortal and half a dozen others that are dead or were never really alive but hughes was one of our friends in the black days when we had few in england working men excepted and emerson was too good a patriot to forget that and too much a lover of manliness in men not to like one who had that supreme trait in a high degree as hughes had so he made the exception in his favor for the working men's college was an institution of high usefulness in which hugh's heart was bound up as for society emerson was an invalid and able on that ground to decline invitations without offence he had studied english society as one form of english life when here in eighteen forty eight and was content with that experience i do not care for classes he said the nineteenth century produced two supremely good books on american and on english civilization tocqueville's de la Democratie en amerique and emerson's english traits published in eighteen fifty six tocqueville's work published in eighteen thirty five remains the best book on the united states for the student who cares to get down to the foundation of things who cares more for ideas tendencies and principles than for details of emerson's the same thing may be said yet no two treatises could be more unlike than those of the frenchman and the american 
but all i wish now to point out is the effect of english traits upon the english themselves roughly speaking it puzzled them it is one of the truest books ever written yet to the english themselves its truth has never appeared quite true on emerson as thinker poet philosopher all kinds of judgments have been formed in england and expressed in some cases with vehemence he has always had an audience and a following here and always enemies but the book they least understand is the book about themselves looking into the egregious alibon for an apt quotation concerning the traits i found none but instead a remark by alibon himself that mr emerson's writings have excited considerable interest on both sides of the atlantic the space given to emerson in the dictionary of english literature is less than a column though fourteen columns are not thought too many for longfellow nor are they in the supplement emerson gets a little more attention still grudgingly given alibon does not matter and the perplexity of the philistine struggling with a book he cannot understand does not matter but let us go at once to the best of english critics to matthew arnold alas we fare no better arnold's discourse on emerson has been resented by emersonians as an elaborate disparagement of their master it is not that arnold was incapable of disparagement and while he denies to emerson many gifts which his readers find in him his appreciation is still sympathetic and he lifts himself to own from time to time emerson's real greatness he thinks the essays the most important work done in prose in our language during the last century more important than carlyle's but he puts aside the english traits because compared with montaigne la bruyere addison the traits will not stand the comparison emerson's observation has not the disinterested quality of the observation of these masters it is the observation of a man systematically benevolent as hawthorne's observation in our old home is the work of a man chagrined and arnold explains that emerson's systematic benevolence comes from his persistent optimism the book is too good-natured to be scientific yet oddly enough or perhaps not oddly the criticism of the english philistine is the exact opposite of arnold's the man in the street if he has read the english traits complains that the criticism of things english is too relentless that emerson always has the scalpel and the probe in hand that the inquiry is not critical but anatomical and the atmosphere that of the dissecting-room he is appalled when he sees the most cherished beliefs of centuries and blended races put under the microscope and when character aristocracy plutocracy the church religion itself are made to take off their masks and yield up their secrets they are not conciliated even when emerson sums up the english as the best of actual races what care they for comparisons with other races or for the opinion of other races or of transatlantic critics upon england and the english and the institutions of this little island emerson's criticism is chemical it resolves things into their elements their primordial atoms no doubt but neither the throne nor the church is shaken nor a single act of parliament repealed 
arnold recalling the influences which wrought upon him as a student at oxford amid the last enchantments of the middle ages said to an american audience in emerson's own delightful town boston he was your newman your man of soul and genius visible to you in the flesh speaking to your bodily ears a present object for your heart and imagination that is surely the most potent of all influences nothing can come up to it and that is the influence which descended beneficially upon us of a past or passing generation to whom it was given to see emerson and to hear him as i think it all over i began to doubt whether to have heard emerson on the platform did not bring you a sense of greater intimacy than to have known him even in his concord home there was a time during theodore parker's illness and absence when emerson and wendell phillips used to take his place at stated intervals in both cases i think once a month before the great audience of the music-hall emerson had precisely the same manner as with a few hundred people he hardly seemed to be aware of his audience he stood there behind parker's desk towering above it his slight figure adjusting itself to whatever attitude suited his mood for the moment never quite erect the body never quite straight the hands fumbling with his manuscript turning over a dozen leaves at a time turning back again another dozen as if it scarce mattered in what order he read often he skipped the large quarto pages were turned by the score and there was no return his mind seemed to be carrying on processes of thought quite independent of those he had inscribed on his manuscript he felt his way with his hearers and his unconsciousness of their presence was therefore apparent only between them and him there was the flow of invisible mysterious currents whether of sympathy or antipathy in mr gladstone's fine image they gave back to him in vapour what he poured out in a flood upon them but that of course was far more completely true of an orator like mr gladstone than of a lecturer like emerson who read his discourse but it was true in a measure of emerson also but emerson was an orator too he was not always above the arts of the orator he could and did calculate his effects observing the while whether they told or not he delighted in a crescendo his voice rose and fell and rose again and he had unsuspected depths of resonant tone at one moment clear and cold then vibrating with emotion in which the whole force of the man seemed to seek expression then sometimes at the very end becoming prophetic appealing menacing till the sentences came as if from the judgment seat he once read allingham's poem the talisman as the peroration of his address in the music hall i never heard anything like it like the wild strange melody of his voice which had in it the intonations and cadences which give to many slavic airs and most of all to the hungarian zardas though that is dance music a magic charm i have spoken of the prejudice against emerson which prevailed in boston and elsewhere it was most vehement in society 
that worshipful company which is necessarily a minority and prides itself on being a minority likes to set its own standards and expects the rest of the world so far as it comes in contact with these social lawgivers to conform to these standards they soon became aware that to no standard but his own did emerson ever conform save so far as civility and kindness bade him he gave way readily enough in little things it is a sign of greatness to hold little things of little account an aphorism by no means universally accepted however it was not emerson's manners to which society objected or could ever object he had the manners of a king without the demands of a king he was a republican king he stood for equality in the sense that he looked down on no man the society view is different society exists in order to look down on all who are not within its sacred circle they must be inferior because they are outside but its objection to emerson lay deeper it recognized in him the natural enemy of privilege and prerogative there were distinguished members of this distinguished body who regarded a man who took the liberty of examining the substructure on which all societies are built as an anarchist they were afraid of him they thought it safer to exclude him by and by they compromised is not or was not boston the home of culture so as emerson's fame grew the exclusion policy was seen to be feeble but when the closed doors were opened what was the astonishment of these excellent persons to discover that emerson did not seem to care whether they were open or closed he had his own life to live and lived it serenely aloof nothing dies so hard as a prejudice i have one of my own which lives in spite of my affection for emerson and my many debts to him and my gratitude that he gave me a little of his friendship i mean that on a too young mind he had or might have an influence not entirely for good he set his ideal so high that as you looked up to him and them your feet sometimes went astray or stumbled he taught you though he may not have meant it to underrate precision of knowledge and the value of details when the things of the spirit and the spiritual life mattered so much how could it be worth while to know all the tenses of greek verbs or to be aware of the rudiments of toe in the paleontological horse there are sentences and pages in the conduct of life and elsewhere which refute this view and i do not press it but i know the effect not of this or that essay but of emerson's attitude toward education and his philosophic indifference to all but what is highest in thought and i think even to-day i would not put his books into the hands of a boy who had not settled views about learning and a conviction of the invincible necessity of an accurate method End of chapter seven